Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Bobby and I serve the Commons community as one of the pastors on the team. I'm delighted to be here in Inglewood today. Truly, I'm super happy about that. So thanks for having me in your midst. This week in our community, we had the first pop-up theology session at the new library. We had a contemplative prayer event centered on Teze, and we had our annual general meeting. So it's been a really big week around Commons, and it's our custom on the Sunday after the AGM to report back to the community. So I'm gonna take just a moment to do that now. As a church and as a charity in Canada, our governance is incredibly important. And so this week we gather together to improve, approve the, improve, approve, definitely approve the financials and the budget and to elect new members to the board. So I want to introduce you really quickly to our entire board and in particular to two new members joining the board this year. Did I hear a little whoop? Maybe it's just, yeah, whoop, whoop, that's great. So they are Janice Chen and Michael Wing and they are serving alongside Theoni Schaefer, Regina Chan, Scott Fisher, Jesse Roos, Justin Duplessis and Stuart McGiven. Maybe some whoop whoops. <laughs> uh, and Stuart's actually stepping into the role of chair this year, so that's also really cool. And all of these people do an incredible job leading us and guiding us, and we are so grateful for their wisdom and for their care. Now, our board is made up of people across five services and both of our two parishes, so you may not see all of these people around all of the time. In fact, maybe you'll never see them. But when you do, and if you do, please be sure to say hello and to say thank you. And by all means, ask questions. They would love to hear from you. So that's about that bit of business. But it is the second Sunday of Lent. Who's loving that? Lent? There's some fans of Lent in the room. So the stole that we wear in our teaching and our sacraments during this Lenten season is the color purple to remind us of themes in Lent. And a part of liturgy that's so lovely is all of the symbol and the metaphor that we pay attention to and we learn from. So this includes the liturgical colors and they match onto the liturgical season. So Lent's color is of course purple. Now, I'm not sure if you are super into purple. Maybe you get hyped about the color purple, but my little niece, Emery, loves the color purple. There she is. So this is a Snapchat that she sent me this week, and yes, there's a lot of purple going on. Please excuse the middle finger emoji, which is up there. I think she just thinks she's saying that I'm her number one auntie, clearly. <laughs> But get this kid, a few nights ago, my sister was putting her to bed, and the two of them, they have this little ritual where they have these chats before Emery goes to sleep. It's part of their nighttime routine, and this week, Emery says to my sister, all the other colors keep getting in the way of purple. <laughs> And my sister was not quite sure what Emery meant by this, so they keep talking. And Emery, who is three and a half years old, she says, 
The other colors, like blue and green and white, they get into my mind and in the way of me thinking about purple, <laughs> which is my favorite color. I mean, what? Come on, like who is this kid? Well, she's ours and we love her. But back to this purple. Purple in liturgy land stands for pain and it stands for suffering and grief and penitence. And these aren't themes that we are necessarily drawn to, are we? Other themes get in the way, like fun and distraction and pride. So Lent, it has this way of calling us back into the purple parts of our spiritual drama, the harder parts. And at first, this sounds like a total downer, but I want you to see something beautiful and comforting with the color purple during Lent. Purple means that every single part of our story and the stories of others are welcome here. The pain that we carry, the horrible things that we go through, the things that really stress us out. Lent is a time to honestly look at all of that, to push the other colors aside for 40 days, and to trust in the great transformation that faith offers. So after the devastating violence in New Zealand this week, where faithful Muslim worshipers were gathered to pray, and a man tore through their community with hate and violence, where 50 people lost their lives and more are still fighting to live, we trust that the purple of Lent will hold this sorrow and the sorrow of others. So I do want to pause for a moment before we carry on to again pray together pray together and to spell out some of our prayers a little more specifically around this tragedy. So let's do that now. Let's pray together. For loved ones lost to hatred and brutality, Lord have mercy. For people left grieving, families stolen, Lord, have mercy. For our Muslim siblings who gathered to pray, Lord, have mercy. For faith leaders in Muslim communities who must now find courage and wisdom, Lord, have mercy. For men with hearts corrupted by white supremacy and violence, Lord, have mercy. For those of us who must speak the truth and yet remain hopeful, Christ, have mercy. Amen. So thank you for praying with me. This Lent, we are in a series called Parables of Grace, and I don't know about you, but it is everything that my heart needs these days, especially this week. The stories that Jesus tells with everyday materials from the ancient world, they still speak to us. They illustrate and invite us into the absurdity, the absurdity of God's love for creation and the wild ways that we get to be a part of making all things new. So today, we are talking about the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. So 
I don't know what your marriage or partnerships or family systems are like, but in my three years of being married to Jonathan Bateman, I have been so glad that we, for the most part, do not keep score. Don't get me wrong, I basically have to always tell myself to stop that nonsense, because scorekeeping is a constant temptation in all kinds of relationships. I'm talking about that imaginary spreadsheet where you keep track of how much someone owes you because of all the good that you've done for them. Well, last week, though, Jonathan and I, we had a little bit of a running joke about keeping score. I said, hey, you know, if you really want to show me that you love me, maybe you could, oh, I don't know, maybe wash my filthy car and show me that you care. And you guys, it worked. (laughs) Jonathan surprised me by doing a grown-up chore that I hate, and he also filled my car up with gas. I mean, come on, he's the best. But Jonathan also, in good jest, made it very clear that he had really kind of gone above and beyond here. So when I texted him later with this message, I said, so nice to finally see out of my car windows. Thanks, love. He said, you're welcome, plus a full tank of gas. And I said, oh, I didn't even notice, which was a total punk text, because obviously I knew about it. And he sent me this like shame gif, just like unbelievable, Bobby. And it was funny, and also this really good reminder that we don't really live like this. We miss the best stuff when we're busy keeping score, don't we? But it's tempting to slip into spreadsheets and scorecards. I think we can all relate to that. He hurt me like this, so I'm going to withhold that. Or she never really understood me, so why should I even bother? Or I can count all of the times he said something so insensitive about this thing that really matters to me, so why should I be all that nice to him? Well, in Matthew 18, there's all this accounting that takes place just before the parable that we dig into today. We've got this absurd story of a shepherd leaving the 99 to go and look for this one lost sheep. And next, Jesus delivers these instructions about what to do when there's conflict in community. So it's step one, point out the problem privately. That doesn't work? Okay, take it to step two. Bring a friend or two along and try again. This time, you have witnesses. Still having trouble? Try step three. Take it to your church. Your combatant still digging in his or her heels? Well, treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, we tend to read this passage in a pretty flat manner. What I mean is that if we were one of Jesus' disciples back then, we'd take that little pencil from behind our ear. I'm sure they had pencils, right? Did they have pencils? I don't know. But we would. We'd take that pencil from behind our ear, and we'd start taking notes. And we'd be like, okay, got it, got it. Step one, yep, cool, got it. Step two, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, no problem. Step three, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Tell everyone? Treat them like a pagan or a tax collector? Oh, wait. Okay. Okay, Jesus, I get it. I see what you just did there. You're kind of stringing us along to make your point, because let's remember, Jesus prefers the company of tax collectors and sinners. 
So once again, we get this irony here that Jesus does not set up a community or a kingdom where there are any limits to grace. Once you finally see that, you're ready for the next part of the story. But Peter, he still tries to keep some score here. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, the prophet Amos also did some accounting when it came to forgiveness. Throughout the prophet's short book, there's this refrain, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. And some experts say Israel later interpreted Amos to mean that God forgives three times, but absolutely punishes on the fourth. So when Peter says up to seven times, it seems like he's being super lavish with forgiveness here. Like, check me out, Jesus. Forget three. Let's go with seven. But staying in this scripture reference track, Jesus is actually doing something far, far superior. The number Jesus uses to swat down Peter's attempt to speak of impressive forgiveness is this one. It's 77. And that actually catapults us all the way back to Genesis 4, 24, where Lamech, in the line of Cain, vows to avenge himself, not seven times, but 77 times. And 77 is a number that became known for its unlimited vengeance taking. And Jesus, he just turns that number right on its head. What kind of vengeance and violence? Well, that needs to stop right here. We are done with that, he says. In my world, we forgive without limit. And there's something really important for us here. Jesus doesn't crawl back through history and cover over the mistakes of the past. You can't delete the hate. You can't ignore the violence. You can't backspace over the revenge. Jesus just builds a different world. Jesus says, in fact, this is the world that's already here, one where you can forgive without limit. You can start a new story. You can begin all over again. Maybe your history holds such profound heartbreak or you have real trouble even sleeping at night because you can't shake the trauma that you endured. It's got such a grip on you. Or you are so bummed that you hurt someone who has only ever loved you, not perfectly, but sincerely. The words of Jesus teach us that forgiveness never runs out. Forgiveness is with you to try again, to move forward and to heal, to get through the tough stuff so that you can actually be free. And Jesus says, let's build a new world right here on top of the ruins of the old one. Lamech, I got you, bro. Amos, it's like step into this forgiveness. You and you and you, you all belong here too. Okay, it is story time and Jesus says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 
Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So, here's the deal. This king in the story is a keeper of records and debts. In addition, nothing keeps him accountable for how he actually treats his subjects. The king says, you can't pay up? Fine then, I'll lock you up. And this isn't just credit card debt with like 19.9% interest, oh my. The servant is a royal slave in charge of finances. And the reason for a slave in this position is that even as he rises up in the ranks, he's still just a slave. So he can be tortured if he doesn't actually perform. So this royal slave, he has accumulated an astronomical amount of debt, not because he spent it on Hermes or Chanel handbags, oh no. It's because as a slave, it's his job to collect all the funds from the cities and the communities in the king's jurisdiction. And somehow he's failed at that. And a note about this debt, it is so excessive that it would have actually been kind of hilarious to the people listening to Jesus tell this tale. We're talking like national debt levels. We're talking millions and millions of dollars here. We're talking there is no hope that this man is ever going to pay up. And the punchline comes when Jesus says, since he could not repay, they're all like, yeah, no kidding. There's no way this guy is going to get rid of the situation and get out of it in one piece. So it gets even kind of funnier when the slave does the following. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. It's like, what's this guy doing begging for patience. There's no way he can repay a debt like this. A lifetime isn't even long enough for repayment. So who's he even trying to fool here? And then in a surprising move, the master takes pity and cancels the debt and the slave is free to go. Now, it's possible that a master would forgive a debt like this, especially if the master has something to gain, like it helps him preserve some power. But the point of the story isn't that this master forgives the debt. The story is still kind of trucking along because there's so much more actually happening here. So the royal slave heads out, but he does not comprehend that he's actually been forgiven. It's like even though he's kind of stepped into this new reality, he insists on the old one. So he tracks down a fellow servant, one who owes him 100 silver coins, and right there we have a different slave. The servant owing the silver is lower on the slave hierarchy. He owes about half a year's earning for an agricultural day laborer. And what does this royal servant do to his fellow slave, the one who had been forgiven millions? Does he forgive him? No. The farthest thing from forgiveness. He grabs him, he throttles him, he chokes him, and he says, pay up what you owe me. How ludicrous, right? How offensive. But the thing is, they are a part of a very wretched system. The royal slave 
isn't just some greedy freak, actually. He's probably just pretty human. The king may have forgiven him a whole pile of debt just now, but what if the master changes his mind and comes calling for repayment? He better be ready for this, right? He knows he needs to be ready just in case. So the low-ranking servant, he falls down at the feet of the first servant, and through his panic and his fear, he cries out, please be patient with me. I will pay you. I will. And Louise Shotroff says that the sympathy of the narrative is directed at the lower servant situation. So if you feel kind of this chill across your chest a little bit or like a squint of dread that something bad is about to happen, you're right. You are right on the money emotionally. This is not going to go well for this lower servant. He has refused forgiveness. Instead, he is thrown into prison, and the Greek in the story adds this violent severity. The slave will be tortured, and he will be put into extreme pain. And the fear ripples out from there. The other slaves, they take note of this harsh treatment, and they grieve. And the royal servant's insistence that the debt get repaid, they're so upset about it that they go to the king. Because I can imagine that they're actually pretty scared for themselves. Like, oh man, this guy is probably going to come for us next. So they go tell the master everything that had happened. And this part, it is not pretty. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, when theologian Louise Shotroff talks about Matthew 18, she makes this really brilliant link between the parable and the Jewish calendar. In making the case that this parable is all about forgiveness among people as an absolute importance among us, Shotrov quotes the Mishnah, the Oral Torah, which states, For transgressions that are between man and God, the Day of Atonement affects atonement. But for transgressions that are between man and his fellow, the Day of Atonement affects atonement only, only, if he appeases his fellow. In other words, you can't leave forgiveness to God alone. You have to live it together. So this parable, it does not have characters who map onto the character of God. You heard that, right? God in this parable is above and beyond. God is through and alongside, but God is not this king. We are. We are the fickle ones who forget that our lives are based on love. We are the ones who forgive in one moment and then take it back the next. We are the ones who ignore the constant source of grace in our lives. And then we work pretty hard at withholding that from each other. We are the king and we are the slave here. Now, before we get to the final verse, I need to say this. In our faith communities, we elevate the act of forgiveness over the work of forgiveness. What I mean is that we often place a burden on the person who was wronged and expect that she or he forgive now and forgive in a hurry. But maybe there's more work to be done than that. 
Soraya Chemile, who writes about the creative power of anger, especially for women, says that if your instinct is to hold off on forgiveness for a while, maybe there's a good reason for that. Because sometimes we can prioritize forgiveness over beneficial solutions. And the point is to actually heal, not to cover over. So just as Lent is this path that we walk, forgiveness is a path too. So may I say, trust yourself. Trust the process. I have no doubt that forgiveness will find you when you're good and ready and when you've done the work. After all, forgiveness, it's actually kind of like a superpower. Forgiveness stops the cycle of abuse in its tracks. It opens the windows to let in this fresh air into the stale room where you hold on to your hurt. Forgiveness bases your interactions on the immovability of God's love for you and for the person that you hurt and even the person who hurt you. Better than a king who forgives one moment and then takes it all back the next. This is God who is unlike any parent that you can even imagine. The last verse reads, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now I know, I know, this sounds harsh. But remember, Jesus loves to make a big statement to pack a gentle punch. Thankfully, Robert Farrar Capon rescues us with his interpretation. Capon writes, Interestingly, the parable of grace ends as a parable of judgment as well. And it makes clear the only basis on which anyone will finally be condemned. If we refuse to die... In particular, if we insist on binding others' debts upon them in the name of our own right to life, we will, by not letting grace have its way through us, cut ourselves off from ever knowing the joy of grace in us. How we treat each other has everything to do with the way we experience the divine at work in us. But let's think about it another way. So I've been reading this book about writing for over a year now. It's not because I'm just a really slow reader. I mean, sometimes I am. But I read it in small bursts. I take it in, and I dwell on it, and I hope it will influence my own writing. So the book is called, as you can see, Light in the Dark, Writers on Creativity, Inspiration, and the Artistic Process. And the book is edited by Joe Fassler, who asked a lot of writers to choose a favorite passage from literature. And there's so much creativity in it. And Fassler says, lines that have hit them hardest over the course of a lifetime's reading and then just write about it. So these writers, they encounter something in the pages of others, and they take it in, and they let it become a part of their own writing and their own works, now informed and shaped and inspired by the works of others. So here's an example. Viet Tang Nguyen was drawn to Antonio Labo Antunes's Land at the End of the World. It doesn't matter if you don't know these books or these authors. But Nguyen encountered the book through just an excerpt, but he knew he needed to read the whole thing. So Nguyen bought a copy of the book. 
and he kept it on his desk the entire time he wrote a novel. And for two years, every morning, he'd read a few pages of the book until his own urge to write became so uncontrollable that he'd finally have to just put the book down and start writing himself. And Nguyen writes, the way that Labo Antunes was able to extract incredible pictures was something I wanted to emulate. And that's what's going on here with Capon's interpretation of the parable. Grace has to have its way through us before we can ever emulate it around us. It's like we have to read it every day for two years before it actually becomes a part of our lives. Of course, I don't mean that literally, but you know what I'm saying? For me lately, reading Grace, it looks like this. I started making a list. I kind of like lists. So I started making a list of grace. It's just a note that I have on my phone. And I also cleverly called it my Karis list, because I just like how that sounds. But Karis is actually grace in Greek. Grace is kindness. It's divine favor. It's this grin of God just smiling out at you from the funniest of places. So this week, I made a list of all the places where I notice grace. With my list making, I realized that grace is like absolutely everywhere in my life. Grace is the return of the spring after a cold snap of this winter. Grace is the love in my life that is better than anything I ever imagined for myself. Grace is art and it's literature and it's sports matches if you're into that kind of thing. Just there, just existing, making you so glad that you're alive. I'm taking note of grace so I can take grace in and live grace out. Because if I don't, if we don't, we are nothing but slaves keeping score. We are fickle kings, forgiving one moment and then taking it all back the next. I want more for us than that. I want more because this last verse says that our experience with God has everything to do with our experience with each other. This is how your heavenly father or mother will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or a sister from your heart. So maybe you'll join me this Lent in keeping a caris list for yourself, just pausing to notice the grace that's already all over your life. And the purple in it, the Lenten practice, is our repentance. That maybe we've been missing out on grace for far too long. And missing out on grace makes it pretty hard to forgive in the first place. So okay, maybe you can't forgive 77 times. It's absurd, I know. But the point is, what if you could? What if you could forgive like that? Let's pray together. Oh, our loving God, it is baffling to think that what matters to you is actually how we treat each other. And we confess that we probably don't take that seriously enough. And so your invitation to us 
is to walk a path of forgiveness. It's not exhausting. It's not overburdening. In fact, it's life-giving. So Jesus, as we follow you this Lent towards your cross, where you take death into your hands, into your heart, into the divine, may we trust your great transformation, trust your lavish forgiveness, that with you, God, renewal is possible. So spirit of the living God, present with us now, Enter the places of unforgiveness, of scorekeeping, and fear. And God, will you heal us of all that harms us? Amen.